Hey everyone, Keith here. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up before you listen to this episode. As part of our health and wellness series, our next guest and friend, Andy Dunn, will be discussing his new book, Burn Rate. During the conversation, we will touch on mental illness and suicide. This is an important conversation, but please listen to this episode and read his book at your own discretion. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode today. We're welcoming Andy Dunn to the podcast. Andy is a Bain alum, the founding CEO of the menswear brand Bonobos, the author of Burn Rate, a memoir on entrepreneurship and mental illness, and someone I've known for a very long time since his days at Bain. Also joining me today as co-host of this episode is Mackenzie Morrison, our director of employee experience, who previously chatted with us about BEST and how Bain is prioritizing health and wellness. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly suggest you go back and listen to what Mackenzie shares about the initiatives we're doing inside Bain. Hi, Mackenzie. Hi, Andy. Hello. Having me. Hi, Keith. So today on the podcast, Mackenzie and I will talk with Andy about his time at Bain and being a serial entrepreneur, his new book titled Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind, and his mission to normalize mental health discussions in the workplace. Andy, it's good to have you here. And as we always do on the podcast, I want to start with a a quick run-through of your bio so that people have a sense of your professional journey. Why don't we start at the beginning? Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? People might know you from your career in fashion. Was that just something people knew from day one when you started going to school or what? Yeah, so Keith, great to be here with you. And obviously, we go way back to whatever it was, early 2000s at Bain Chicago. And I think that's kind of where my my, my professional story starts at Bain Chicago. My personal story starts not far away. So born and raised in the western suburbs of Chicago. Mom is an immigrant from India, born in a refugee town on the way from Rawalpindi, Pakistan to New Delhi, India at the time of the partition. And dad, I don't know how to say it, is a Midwestern white dude, Scandinavian, Irish, multi-generational. So you know, I was raised in a, in a biracial, bicultural household, which I think invited me to ask a lot of questions with no certain answers. I can remember at some point saying, well, your religious systems, like you both can't be right, you know? Right. So it was a great upbringing, really left wanting for nothing. We were very much a middle-class family, dad, a US history teacher, mom, and x-ray tech at a hospital, very tight with my older sister, Monica, just a couple years older. We now have a brand together in the baby apparel space, which our mom named, we couldn't figure out the name. So she called it Monica and Andy. So it's a tight-knit family, and I think, you know, part of what we'll talk about today was, you know, that upbringing was sort of punctured unexpectedly when I was a senior in college with this mental health issue that we'll talk about. Went to Northwestern for undergrad, and my senior year accepted a job at Bain Chicago, so I got a chance to spend the very formative years of my career at Bain. That's sort of zero to 20 right there on my background. Yeah, and then we met around the time I got back from business school, we were actually on a project together briefly, but you left Bain shortly thereafter. And where did you go from there? Yeah. So my, my first two years out of college, I was an AC at Bain. And then I remember my conversation when I got promoted to SAC, basically someone, it might've been Krista Bridgeway, it might've been Adrian King. I think it was Adrian said, you're the worst AC we're ever promoting to SAC or something. <laughs> and it, she, it was like a more empathetic version of that. It was like, well, you weren't that good at this. But we think maybe you'll be good at the next thing because you have to do less of the work yourself and get to actually like manage others. And like, we actually see some potential for that. And that was a, it was amazing. a nice way of putting it, but that was kind of the message. So got to spend my third year as an SAC splitting time between Chicago and a project in El Salvador. And it can't be understated 
it really changed my life to live in a country where the GDP per capita was $2,000 a year. Although I never experienced the challenges of my mom's upbringing in India, I felt like El Salvador was the first time, it was the first time that I got to be immersed in a developing world country and working on a Bain project really changed my life there. And it, it put a travel bug in me at that point that I kind of spent the next five years pursuing. So I had two years in private equity in Chicago at a mid-cap PE fund called Winpoint Partners. And then I went to Stanford Business School for two years. And really that was just like a vehicle to make some money and travel. So I went to, you know, 30 or 40 countries over the course of the next few years. And, you know, coming out of business school, didn't really know what I was going to do next, wanted to build something and stumbled into a very lucky connection, which is that my Stanford GSB housemate of two years, another Bain alum named Brian Spaley had this cool idea to make better fitting men's pants. And I was mostly excited just to start something and to get a chance to think about a new way to build a brand digitally. So, uh, you know, the gift from Bain keeps on giving because I, I got to be an entrepreneur out of a friendship, you know, with another Bain alum. So now you've now sold Bonobos. And when we talk about your bio, we get to add author to the list. So Keith and I had a chance to read Burn Rate, which released in May. Both loved it. We will try to limit the spoilers on here. So everyone who was listening to this podcast is encouraged to go buy it. But something struck me as I was reading it. We have a framework at Bain called Thriving, which is really about going beyond the typical definitions of success, promotions and raises and positions, and thinking more holistically about how we achieve across all dimensions of our lives. And there are four steps. It's setting your direction and knowing what's important to you, charting your path and taking intentional steps to achieve those important things, assembling your crew and really leaning into your community. And then navigating with intent, which is about being mindful about your direction and path and understanding that those best laid plans often go astray. After you're reading your book, I know you have firsthand experience, particularly with number four, your mental health journey and diagnosis became something that you had to navigate while also managing an incredibly successful career and life. And I'm curious for you, what does it actually look and feel like to navigate? It's a beautiful framework, first of all. And I think I'll tell you this, while I was writing Burn Rate, I was so consumed by it that I didn't have a chance to read anything else except one book. A friend happened to give it to me. Like a good book often does, it came to me at the right time because here I was trying to write my own. And it's called Falling Upward. And it's by a Franciscan friar named Richard Rohr. I didn't even know what I was getting into when I picked it up. And the book is basically about how at some point before you turn 40, that by definition, you have your life turned upside down by something. Mm. Inevitably, if you're lucky enough to make it to 40 years of age, something is going to turn your life upside down. It may be multiple things. It could be the loss of a loved one. could be the loss of a job. It could be a divorce. It could be so many things. In Mm -hmm. my case, that came when I was 20 which was this, you know, diagnosis that I had with bipolar disorder type one, severe mental illness. It's a mood disorder and it's more colloquially known as manic depression. I got away with it in some regard for 16 years because I didn't deal with it. And I, I didn't have a second recurrence of the triggering event for the diagnosis, which is being manic, delusions of grandeur, elevated patterns of speech, thinking that you have absolute truth or knowledge, visions that 
come to you and you tend to do things like you stop eating, you stop drinking, you stop sleeping. And you can imagine that the human mind and body get even more separated when that happens. And with mania, typically the only way back down is a hospitalization because you need medication to, to stabilize your mood. So this happened at 20 and I had then a 16 year wait, you know, until it came back, at least on the high side with mania. And it was really that second one at the age of 36 that it turned my whole life upside down. You know, here I was uh, nine years into building a startup. We were, it turns out, you know, a year away from a, from a $300 million exit. I was in a relationship with a woman, you know, a good relationship for the first time in my adult life. Uh, which probably doesn't surprise Keith, who knew me in my early 20s. It wasn't <laughs> obvious this was going to go that well. It's a different episode. That's but a different episode. I, I've got nine years of building a company. I've got a great girlfriend. Everything is feeling right. And I have this second recurrence of psychosis. And I ended up in the hospital, um, Bellevue Hospital in New York. Uh, I would say notorious, except it's a magical place in terms of the work that they do there. The hospital with the psychiatric ward in New York City. And it just turned my life upside down in every way, you know, was the relationship going to survive? Was I going to lose my job based on some things that, that happened that you would learn about if you read the book? Was I going to get healthy? Was my family going to get clear on this issue that we had been in denial of for a long time? And it was in fact, how I responded to that in the way that the community around me, you know, the, the people, the cast of characters, the way that we all collectively got clear eyed and the way that the strength and fortitude that was shown by my now wife to be with me through that, that has so much more of an impact has had on who I am than any of the other things that were, that we could talk about. And so being ready for those moments, is, it's hard to do, but they're the ones that are going to, I think, define us, the ones that we're not planning for on that trajectory. That's why I love that framework. And I think it's interesting because that navigating prior to that second episode probably looks a bit different than you navigating your diagnosis with your life now. What's the biggest difference for you now? You know, it's funny. I think about the True North framework, right? Like the way that Bain teaches you to try to divorce like passion from data. Like we need passion in life. It's the engine of human relationships. It's the engine of creativity. We need that id. And then we also need to say, well, wait a second, here's the data. What does that mean? Like, right. how do we hone our understanding and recognize that there's a collision of fantasy and reality and they're both important? And so I'd say for me, I wasn't data driven the first time I was diagnosed. The words hung so heavy on me, bipolar disorder, that I couldn't internalize it because to internalize it would have been to internalize a lot of other things. For example... 60% suicide attempt rate for people with bipolar disorder type one and a 19% suicide rate. So you can kind of picture as a 20 year old, how do you process the idea that there's a one in five chance that you might end your life? And so you have this sort of stark data moment that's happening to you. And if, as I couldn't really confront that information and process it and try to figure out how to move forward, at some, some points it's easier to just bury it entirely. Mm -hmm to be in denial of it. And I would say the second time, you know, to your question, Mackenzie, was different because there was no, there was no denying it. You know, I wasn't a 20 year old college kid. It wasn't the year 2000 when we were two decades behind us in terms of where the mental health conversation was. And so instead became a very data-driven conversation. Like, what do I need to do 
to stay healthy. And for me, that, that means I've got five different medications that I could technically be on any given day. I've got one that I call my ride or die. That's like my mm-hmm. core mood stabilizer. I'm, I'm taking that every day unless something changes in, you know, in the psychiatric pharmacological world. I'm taking that every day for the rest of my life. And I think that's kind of a hard first step, you know, to, to swallow your pride, to accept that you need mm-hmm. to take a medication every day. And it's funny, I was recently with a Bainey and they were telling me a story about how their significant other, you know, doesn't want to take, to take a pill, doesn't want to take medication for something. And I try now not to laugh when I hear that because that was me. We need to make it easier for people to actually engage in the forms of help that are available. And that begins with not making it shameful to be accepting of those issues. And and the other side of the coin for me is a great doctor. And I see my doctor now twice a week, which I know other people with bipolar disorder, they're like, you see your doctor twice a week. And it's like, well, it's a, I'm in a position of privilege to be able to do so, but I'm not going 72 hours given the hell that I've been through and put others through without having a doctor or psychiatrist with eyes on me. And we could talk about other things, whether it's the importance of sleep, the importance of transparency with loved ones around mood state, financial controls on being pragmatic financially. We could go through a lot of it, but Mackenzie, I think the core of your question is something that we learned, you know, day one at Bain, which is pay attention to the data. Andy, you touched on it a little bit in your response just now, but the timing of your diagnosis, actually, my understanding is, was at the very beginning of your professional career, the end of your college career, which is about the time that we just met. Can you talk about how you navigated that as basically a new graduate? Where did that diagnosis fall in your professional journey? Yeah, it's funny, uh, Mackenzie, as you said what you did, and I said, thank you for having me. I wanted to say also, thank you, Bain, for giving me a job, because <laughs> the the timing is uncanny. You know, I was a, a junior in college who wanted to be an ACI at Bain. That was my dream job. I didn't get the job. I went to another not-to-be-named consulting firm. I had a great summer. I got an offer from them, and I came back to Bain in the fall, and I interviewed for a job at Bain Chicago, and this time I got the job. And I said, hey, my other job's in New York. Can I have it in New York? And Bain Chicago was like, no, you may not. So I was like, all right, in Chicago, we trust. (laughs) And between the time that I accepted that job in the fall of 1999 and the time I was due to start at Bain in the summer of 2000 was when I had the manic episode that got this whole story going. And there was another AC who I knew who had gone to college with me he was the person who'd introduced me to Bain, to Julie Kaufman, as it turns out. And I still remember the case that she gave, the cheese case, as it was called, which I aced. I was like, all right, I got it this time. I think I bombed it the first time. And then maybe she gave him the second time. Probably that's cheating or something, but it's legendary. Got it right. Yeah, it's a great case. You know, I wish in retrospect, Keith, that, you know, we lived in a world where I might have been able to tell Julie and tell the partners or the managers at Bain who I had gotten the job from of like, hey, just so you know, I had this mental health incident and I received this diagnosis and, you know, here's what I'm doing, but I just wanted to make you aware of it. But that wasn't in the possibility set because I couldn't even have the conversation with myself. It was a, it was a traumatic memory in that I pushed it down and when it would come up, couldn't have that conversation with myself. And I think that's partly the goal of the book is to enable people to have that conversation with themselves first 
so that they can be in a position to have it with other people. If we can build workplaces where people feel comfortable bringing that mental health, typically hidden part of their mental health journey in the right way to work, wow, like that's a world that I that I want to live in. And Andy, did you do anything different when you were starting out? I know you talk about this a little bit in the book, but were you doing anything differently early in your journey? I mean, we met around that time and I remember you as being quite outgoing, quite social. A lot of people at Bain have that passion, so they have a ton of energy all the time. So nothing seemed out of the ordinary if you meet somebody who might be sort of right on the edge. Were you aware of that or did you just suppress it to the point where you just tried to live live every day like it was normal? I was in denial, Keith. I really didn't I didn't want to engage with any consideration that there might be something quote unquote abnormal about me. There is a mood state in between kind of a standard mood state and a manic state, which is called hypomania. Mm -hmm. And hypomania is virtually like indistinguishable from a excitable extroverted person, right? It's, it's when, you know, ideas are coming quickly, a lot of contagious positive spirit, maybe a bit of vision, a little bit more personal risk-taking conversationally or otherwise. And I think, as my doctor says, might we all be controllably hypomanic every day? That's when we're on. That's when we're in a flow state. We feel like our lives have purpose. The universe has meaning. Work is coming naturally to us. We're a little bit more connected every conversation that we have. And, you know, also that mood state tends to line up pretty nicely with how we expect entrepreneurs to be showing up. And so it's hard to distinguish someone who's in that mood state in a way that is somewhat healthy and sustainable versus someone who's in it in an unhealthy way. And I think I was a good actor at times, you know, with with the mood states. And, and frequently there's the flip side of that coin, right, when those lights are out. When generally when you see someone that's got that kind of bright of a light on, there are going to be other times where it's totally out. And that was the part that I hid was my depressive side. And frankly, you know, coming back to the concept of data, it was unhelpful in that I didn't experience depression for seven or eight years after the diagnosis. That didn't really kick in until I was building bonobos. And so it's a tricky thing when the full symptoms don't reveal themselves right away. And, and I think that it, that kind of in, enabled and fueled my denial was sort of the delay and onset of the flip side of the coin, which is the depressive side of the illness. And if we get to that first stage, we can move ourselves into acceptance and past denial. And now we get to the settings that we all operate within. You had this beautiful quote that I'm going to read from Burn Rate, and then I'd love your perspective. It's, let's not celebrate crazy and let's not stigmatize it either. Let's just deal with mental illness openly, transparently, medically, chemically, in the mirror and in living rooms and conference rooms, boardrooms and family rooms and bedrooms, and yes, rooms with trained therapists and psychiatrists. And let's, for everyone's sake, stop pretending that it's not there. I think we all want to do better. How do we stop pretending and start embracing, especially in this business context, which feels like it should just be quote unquote professional, but we're showing up as our whole selves or the selves that we want to. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I think that that celebration of crazy is sort of, sort of a fun moment in the writing of the book was the title selection and everyone has an opinion on the title of a book. 
And there was a particularly influential person in the orbit around this book that liked the concept of here's to the crazy ones, which if you don't know, it is a reference, I think, at least originally to a Steve Jobs driven Apple commercial Mm -hmm. when he came back to Apple after his hiatus, next computing, came back and did this commercial and it had like Gandhi and Dr. King and it was sort of this here's to the crazy ones thing. And it never sat right with me. And I finally, I figured out like, first, never compare yourself to Steve Jobs. <laughs> so that was like step one. Like, even though I didn't come up with this title, like, it's like, dude, you sold some pants on the internet. Like, let's just not, let's not take this too far. Um, so that was kind of the first thing. But the second one is this concept that like crazy in some certain manifestation is a good thing. And I found that also doesn't resonate with me anymore. This concept of, well, that person's brilliant in some ways. And so there's just other stuff that we're going to deal with because of it in a way is its own acceptance of the status quo. And so I think your question is a good one, which is how do we change the nature of the conversation to neither bury it nor celebrate it and certainly not to look down on it or to stigmatize it. And, and that's where I'm so focused. And in my goal in writing this book is, is pretty singular, which is to normalize disclosure of mental illness and mental health challenges in the workplace. And I believe that that normalization as with anything in life begins with leaders. Now a leader can be someone on the team, anyone really that steps forward and takes opportunities to disclose. And also leaders are the people that lead organizations. And so my message to anyone hearing this, who is a leader of what they do, who has got a secret or some version of a secret is to bring it at some point to work. And that might start by just telling one person at work that doesn't know, you know, it doesn't have to start at a town hall doesn't have to start on a Zoom in front of 500 people. In fact, it never starts that way. But just start by telling one person. Just tell one person. And then I think there's a related concept, which is you don't need to have a story as colorful as mine. You don't need to have some diagnosis that you've hidden to have a story. You know, it comes back to the falling upward book. None of us have a choice but to have had mental health struggles in our lives at some point. And the people that I worry about are the ones that are like, well, I don't have any mental health challenges. And it's like, well, you've got one, which is an inability to be transparent with yourself and vulnerable with others. Like, let's start with that one because it just presents with these things. And so if we as leaders can bring that disclosure and that vulnerability to the workplace, we set a new norm for everyone else, which is that this is a safe place and it's a it's a trusted environment where I can bring those stories. And I and I think that's the first step. Andy, do you get the sense that the business world or the corporate world or you know the the investment world is changing on this one? Because I do feel like with the struggles of several high-profile athletes, even in the past couple of months, and even a couple of years ago, I remember talking with someone close to me who wanted to take a mental health day off from high school. And this was probably six years ago. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? That's summer vacation, get back to class. And in retrospect, you know, 
that's actually a really mature way of, of self-monitoring and acknowledging the struggles that she was having in a way that I just think of what type of leader she will be having had that experience versus what type of leader I would have been at that age. And so I, I have a little bit of hope for the next generation of leaders coming in because they're growing up in a world where people aren't afraid to talk about it the way they were when you and I were in college. A hundred percent. And Keith and Mackenzie, I always figured that if I told people, if I had been able to have the conversation with myself and therefore been able to tell someone else about this professionally, that it would have been a career limiting thing to share. Right. That was my, that was kind of my fundamental belief system. And my thinking was, you know, who would give capital, who would give venture capital to someone who was on the record as having bipolar disorder? Who would want to work for me if they knew or thought I had this, let's call it, you know, mercurial or oscillating state of moods? Or maybe they would fund me, maybe they would work for me, referring to potential investors and employees, but would they now see me in a, in a new and diminished way? Would there be a new frame? Well, wait, is that actually a good idea or is Andy, you know, not well? And, and I think in that regard, Keith, that the business world sometimes goes last, you know, it always starts with our entertainers. You know, you kind of even think about the journey of, you know, normalization of being a member of the LGBTQ community. Like it starts with entertainment because it's a, it's no threat to us, right? They're entertainers. And then sports is a funny one. It kind of depends on the issue. But I think you're right. The zeit- you can feel the zeitgeist has changed mm-hmm. in terms of mental health and mental illness in the sporting world. You can literally just watch it change over the last 24 months. You know, certainly Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, other folks like Marty Fish. There's a great documentary about a tennis player, former U.S. number one, who was literally like on the Long Island Expressway on the way to play Roger Federer in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open pinnacle achievement of his career and he had a panic attack and couldn't play and he withdrew for physical reasons and he just disappeared for three years and everyone assumed what some physical injury and then he made this triumph and come back and and talked about it and it resonated so much with me when he came back and basically said i want to tell everyone what i'm dealing with and he had people in his corner being like no that'll take your edge away you know like you don't want people to know that and in my mind i'm thinking no that is your edge Right. That is your, you have power in that story of triumph. And it certainly spoke to me as I was understandably nervous about getting this story out there. So when it comes to the business world, we so often go last, right? Maybe politics goes last. It used to go last, but maybe now politics is leading the way, (laughs) leading the charge. I think it's because people assume it's going to limit their career. So we've got to find a way to convince people that it won't. And I think that. One of the ways to do that is to show them that we're already here. Like you don't have to worry about having bipolar disorder and being an up and coming entrepreneur. If a bunch of entrepreneurs who've already done stuff who have bipolar disorder are on the record about it. And the truth is that bipolar disorder indexes, we think at 3% of the general population and the preliminary research shows that it indexes seven to one in entrepreneurs. So we're talking one in five people already funded and in flight, whether they're successful later or not, already have the issue. And so 
And, and so thank you for reading that passage, Mackenzie. But the point is like, we are already here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hopefully we can stop hiding. And on our path to normalizing mental health discussions in the workplace, we start with leadership, role models. We can do this. It's part of this community. I think there, there's also then the conversation of how can we support one another, whether your leadership or not, but just a colleague and a friend and somebody who cares. Because there was almost a tale of two cities and burn rate when you started to tell people about your diagnosis. There were some that avoided, there, maybe there were some missed expectations, some disappointment. There were others that you told, and it was acceptance, love, support. When someone discloses something to us about their mental health, how can we respond to that disclosure in a healthy and supportive way, even if we feel ill-equipped or ill-prepared for that conversation? Yeah, totally. It's such an awesome question and I'm, and it's so important. And I'm thinking about the different experiences I've had in my life when I've told someone and I'm, I'm like developing this two by two in my head since we're, you know, I'm kind of in in the, in the the Bain brain space, the Bain space. And the two by two that I'm picturing is enthusiastically accepting on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum is is cold indifference <laughs> or, or maybe, you know, some element of trying to, maybe this is the worst, deny what you just heard is true. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, for some reason, the way I see you isn't that you have depression. So I might say something like, you don't seem like someone depressed to me or like, that's not, that doesn't, that's not depression or kind of trying to find a way to suggest that this thing that someone has just shared, this deeply vulnerable thing, isn't true. So that's kind of one part of the two by two. The other axis is try to do something about it. Problem Um, solvers. Try to solve the problem, which there's a very good chance that you can't or you're not trained for that. Like trying to figure out like how to do something. And then like there's kind of like do nothing. And I think the right quadrant of the two by two is enthusiastic acceptance and like do nothing. And by nothing, I don't mean nothing, right? If someone is expressing suicidal thoughts, there's probably something to do. If someone, if you actually know a way to be helpful or you have some encouraging words to offer, or if you have your own issues, sometimes reciprocal disclosure can be good. It can be bad. That's probably a separate conversation unless it feels right. Maybe if it's the exact same thing, it could be connecting. And so with that, hopefully one can feel like, yeah, it'd be nice to have some training on how to have that conversation. But the truth is, is you don't need it. Your grandmother already taught you it, which is just look at someone with love in your eyes and say you understand and hear them. And by the way, you're in the top 10% if you can do that. And so the, the thing that we need to do is something that's accessible to all of us which is to just deploy that elusive human quality of empathy. Yeah. And Andy, I think that's really good advice for leaders because this is a scary topic for a lot of us. You can't see a mental health issue on an x-ray. You can't see it in a CAT scan necessarily, right? It's not a broken bone where you know it will heal on a fixed timeline that's been well studied. And I think some of this is fear and a lot of it is ignorance because we didn't grow up in a world talking about or learning about these types of issues until relatively recently for a lot of us. I'm 26 years into my career and this is in the last few years become a topic of discussion 
because it, it matters. I really applaud you and the other people that are, that are forcing the conversation in the circles that we're in. Andy, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the role leaders play and a few of the principles that they should be keeping in mind as they lead their organizations, as they develop leadership skills. A lot of people listening to this today are on the front end of that journey, but a lot are also further along and it's never too late to learn some new skills. What are some of the principles that you would put out there for people to keep in mind as they start becoming well-rounded, effective leaders? I was thinking about some of the principles you had about the 10% further and those types yes. of things. So let's let's yes. touch on that. 10% further, I love. So I'll share with you a story from my time at Bain. There was a manager that I had in, you know, that kind of line of you dislike your boss, you like your boss, you love your boss, or like on somewhere from the level of, I love to ask people, who do you admire? Because like... <laughs> It's amazing as human beings, we're like, wait a second, who do I admire? So you have kind of this like respect, admire frame. Well, there was a manager who I really admired and he seemed to be so good at the job. It felt, it felt like he was on his way to being a partner soon. Maybe he was a case team leader when I met him. And then one day he shared with me that he thought he was a bit of a fraud. It was so unexpected. You know, he was the last person I saw as a fraud. And he shared with me, you know, a, a AC, a junior person on the case team. I think we were driving out to the client, which is something we used to do back in the day. We used to drive to clients. And that show of vulnerability was so connecting. I was like, I'm right. I was right to admire this person because this is a very special human that can do that. And I think the fact that he chose, you know, a one-on-one -on -one setting and invited me into that discussion, that created a new level of trust. And by the way, it inspired me to want to be even better, you know, and by even better, I mean, like, be remotely good. <laughs> this was the same manager. I once did a presentation. I was so pumped about it. And then at the end of it, he was like, ah, just that wasn't that good. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, you just, it felt like you were trying to persuade me rather than just kind of get me up to speed. And that was a moment of like, oh, shoot, maybe like I should probably do something different because that's kind of what entrepreneurs do, right? It's like, how do we weave a spell of hocus pocus around people to convince them that these stupid ideas are going to work? Good skill for an entrepreneur, maybe harder for, uh, you know, Bain AC1. Although we could talk later about that. The underpinnings, the, the, the dance right. between fantasy and reality that is building a startup, but we can save that for another day. And all the ways I'm grateful to my Bain training for cultivating that muscle. So anyway, you got this manager who is being honest at their core, first candid and direct feedback, and also candid and direct disclosure. And I'm reminded of this concept. I didn't keep a lot with me from business school, but this one stuck with me is this concept of the Jahari window. And if you'll bear with me for a second, and it's probably easier to Google it and look at it, but it basically suggests that there's two dimensions, the, the degree to which we're known to others and the degree to which we're known to ourselves. And so we have the known knowns. Gosh, I'm back in a two by two. This is so fun. We have the known knowns. We have the things that are known to us about ourselves, but unknown to other people, the things that are unknown to both of us, God help us, nobody knows. And then we have the things that are the inverse, you know, the unknown knowns or known unknowns. And basically, 
there's only two ways to decrease the size. Well, it's increase the size of the window, or maybe it's decrease it, whatever. It's the increased self-understanding. And those two things are feedback and disclosure. The only way for you to know things about me that I know that you don't, for example, that I live with bipolar disorder is for me to tell you that. Now I'm now more known to you. And the only way for me to know things that you're experiencing of me that I don't know about, like, hey, Andy, that presentation wasn't that effective, would be for you to tell me. And so we have these two tools at our disposal that happen to be very difficult things to do. Disclosing things about ourselves that we, our instinct is not to is a hard thing to do. And feedback to others that isn't easy to give is a very hard thing to do. Anyway, that KC leader's name was Peter Hirschman, and he didn't know it, but in one six-month case, he role-modeled to me two of the most difficult things to do, set aside in business and in life. And I think no matter where we are in our careers, we have to keep revisiting those two skills. You never get there. And shout out to Peter, who is somebody who I actually just connected with again uh, in the last couple of days. But you know, what's interesting, Andy, about what you're describing there is that in both situations, it starts with communication and willingness to be vulnerable, but it's in the face of everything that you're doing with the rest of your day. As an entrepreneur, there is no doubt this business is a unicorn and it's going to take off. As a consultant, there is no question that I have not answered and no expertise that I'm lacking in, right? Like every other part of your waking day is proving that you're airtight, no weaknesses. And what you're talking about is saying, actually, I have a little bit of self-doubt about this, or actually, I'm not sure this is right. I'm not even sure this is the right job for me. That makes it, to me, even more difficult to do what you're suggesting. 100%. And I think that's why the beginning of the story with him, in this case, Peter sharing with me that he felt like a fraud was so disarming. Because in the business world, and certainly at Bain, we are prized for knowing the answer. And so, you know, the question becomes, how do we be candid about when we don't and still inspire confidence? And the truth is for me, the most confident people I know are the ones that know to say they don't know. Right. And then you better believe that part of your job is to not continue to not know. Right. It's to then know. That's the next part. No one's going to be excited about someone that doesn't know the answers and continues to not know them. So it's kind of, you know, don't know the answers to new questions. And so I think that's the journey that we're all on. Andy, we so appreciate this conversation and chatting with you about all these different dynamics. As we close, you've stated that your mission is to normalize mental health discussions in the workplace. And so our question to you is what is next for you in terms of that mission and beyond? Thank you for asking. You know, I'm partly terrified and mostly just so excited to have this story out, something that I've kept behind a veil for so long, you know, as my mom said, wait, so now we're going to tell everyone. <laughs> so that part of the last two years of, of writing this book has been like a, a reintegration. And also it's not enough for me to, to write a book and say, okay, the story's out. I want to, I want to keep building. And so I'm working on something connected to this. It's a, it's a new startup. It's called pumpkin pie. And basically we're trying to build for lack of a better way to put it is like a, a Tinder for friendship. And our observation is that a lot of our mental health in terms of the way that we think about it hinges upon a romantic partner. If we don't have one, our search for one. 
And only people who have a long-term romantic partner know that they're only the solution to our life's problems for like 18 months. <laughs> and then they just become one of life's problems. Just kidding, Manuela. It, wow. it becomes another thing about your life. It doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally change you. And I think in a way that when we're, when we're searching for someone, certainly I felt that it might. And yet we have this other kind of love that the Greeks identified the different kinds of love, which is friendship love. And I think friendship love is something that is underprized in our society. I don't think we underprize it personally, but we underprize it as a society in terms of our conversation about it, our efforts around it. Think of the body of work around love and finding love. Compare that to the body of work around friendship and finding friendship. And it's funny, it ties into this discussion and that some of the research shows that one of the best ways to love your job is to have one real friend at work. And so we're, we're building an app that's all about social discovery of friends. Cool. Awesome. Andy, I want to thank you for taking time out today. As Mackenzie said at the top, we both took the time to read the book on this podcast because as a storyteller and somebody who's fascinated by people's journeys, I would have loved to have spent the whole hour talking about your journey. But instead, I want people to read the book. We could not do it justice on this podcast. But again, as somebody who's knew you early in your Bain career and has followed your journey from afar, and, and considered you a friend that I just didn't keep in touch with that well over the years. It was really amazing to watch. And it was really, it sparked a lot of introspection because I had no idea that you were going through all the things that you talked about in the book. And that's why I think the book is so important because you just don't know what people are going through. And you showed up for work every day and did a damn good job at it somehow. Uh, and that was very eye-opening for me as, as I you know, go through life and interact with so many different types of people. And I think that's really important for people. And I hope that they take the time to read the book and reflect on, on what you were doing while you were struggling with so many different things. Thank you so much. I was going to say, it's like reconnecting with an older brother who I haven't seen for 20 years. I don't want to date you here. I was saying 26 years of professional experience. It felt like you were in, a, in another league at that time. And so it's great to reconnect. And it, it reminds me of how I feel about Bain, which is, you know, it's professional family to me. It's where I started my career. And so I'm so excited about the chance to have had this conversation with both of you today. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Mackenzie.